0: Many Christians today believe that the Sabbath was instituted on Mount Sinai with Moses. But careful study of the scriptures reveals the truth, that the Sabbath was instituted at creation and it was practiced by God's faithful from Adam to Christ. Welcome to the show everybody. Thanks so much for joining me today. My name is Tudor Alexander and I'm your host as always. Thanks so much for being here. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe on my website because that is the best way to, <clears throat> excuse me, stay in touch. You never know what these platforms, they're always doing finicky things like YouTube, I've heard is down liking people's, you know, votes and comments and things like that. They Some comments don't get posted for whatever reason. So you just never know. The best way for me to stay in touch with you and for you to stay in touch with me is through my website. You can get in touch with me there. I have a whole library of things that are organized there, and that will never get censored. So, stay in touch, danceoflife.com. But today we're continuing our Sabbath series, a very, very, very important series. And it's very important because if you were with me in the last episode on why the Sabbath matters, you know why it's important now. Hopefully, if I did a good enough job, you know and realize and you palpably feel why the Sabbath matters. It is not, it, is, it always mattered, but in this particular generation that we live in, because of the Sabbath's connection to the end times and the things that are mobilizing under people's noses, it is perhaps probably the most important thing. So important, especially for Bible-believing Christians. Now, of course, obviously, we should always evangelize, spread the gospel. That's priority for people who do not believe. But for people who believe, the Christians... At least people who call themselves Christians, this knowledge is extremely important because what is coming on the horizon will test who the elect are and who the elect aren't. Of course, the Bible tells us that there are many false converts and it invites you to confirm your election. Those people who God has chosen to save and reveal himself to will not be deceived by what is coming. But those who are not saved, and of course, all these things are probably controversial. Unfortunately, it's another can of worms, a whole other topic, but nonetheless, this is what the Bible tells you, <clears throat> because the, the deception that's coming on the horizon, according to Christ himself, is going to be so powerful that it could fool even the people God has chosen to save if it were possible. Of course, it's not possible because you can't undo God's work, but that's how powerful it's going to be. So confirm your election. Study to show yourself Approved learn the truth especially about the sabbath because that will be a key player in what is coming on the pipeline but today we're looking at an interesting topic it's going to be a very in-depth topic from adam to christ we're going to look at the sabbath and and see how it was practiced what what would the bible can reveal to us from the very beginning which is very interesting now again if you if you're just joining make sure you check out that last episode why the sabbath matters we looked at things like the end times, and of course, health also, which is very important. The Sabbath is made for man. It's designed for your health, both for your physical health and for your spiritual health as well. A lot of people are very deceived on this topic. Unfortunately, they either go to the right or to the left. They either go towards legalism, and we're going to address that quite a bit in this series, like with the lunar Sabbath and with the evening to evening Sabbath or whatever else. You know, you see a lot of people who believe in these ideas, and some of them as far as the Sabbath goes, that are also Unitarians. They reject the Trinity, they're sacred name people, Hebrew roots people. It's really unfortunate. So you have to be able to navigate through the weeds because every time you learn something, most of the time people are always to the right or to the left. They'll give you some bit of truth, but then they'll they'll not walk the narrow road with you. And that's my goal in everything that I do is to walk the narrow road with you. So I hope that this will be edifying. I hope you'll learn quite a bit. Seventh-day Adventists have a lot to say about these things, like the the Sabbath specifically and and how it relates to the end times. But then, again, they, they lead you into error with their investigative judgment. And Ellen White, which in my end time series, which I linked in the past, and I'll link it again, my end time series... Now, if you can hear a, a hum or a drum, there's some stupid airplane in the air right now. But anyway, if you can't, then disregard what I'm saying. But nonetheless, there. Okay, it's loud. Okay, <laughs> I think it's. I think it's over. That's that was probably louder for me than it was for you. But nonetheless, that was kind of annoying. Non- nonetheless, Seventh Day Adventists have a lot to say about this. But again, they lead you into error with some of the things that they teach. And because Seventh-day Adventists are also synergists, they deny predestination and election the way the Bible teaches it, it manifests as legalism. That's why a lot of people have accused Adventists of being legalists. I don't think all of them are, but that's what happens when you deny predestination and election and God's sovereign effect on salvation, sovereign control over the, of everything. So be careful, be careful with all these things because the Sabbath especially is is a real narrow road. And that's my goal with this series and why I wanted to make this series, because as we move towards the end and as this becomes a more prevalent issue, understanding the nuances and understanding the Sabbath and what's going on, how did it get here, what's the historical context, what are the various arguments and positions, will help you not to be led into deception. That's really my goal. So, today we're going to answer a couple of important questions. Something like, was it only for the ancient Hebrews? A lot of Christians believe that, oh, the Sabbath was just made for the Jews or the Hebrews. When in reality, actually, the correct term would be Israelites. Because Jews came from the Israelites and Israelites came from the Hebrews. But that's a different kind of worms. Did, did the Sabbath start with Moses? Did it start at Sinai or was it, was it before that? And you'll, you'll be surprised to see the answer. Was the Sabbath celebrated before the Exodus? The answer is yes. What did the apostles and Jesus think about the Sabbath? We're going to look at in depth at all the situations where, where Jesus was discussing the Sabbath, dealing with the Sabbath. What did he say? What did he feel about it? What was his opinion and belief about the Sabbath? Because he's the Lord of the Sabbath, so we that's the first opinion that we should consider. We're also going to look at the apostles and how... And the disciples as well, not just the 12 apostles, but the disciples and some recorded things in the books of Act, in the book of Acts and so on that are very telling of what the people believed in around that time. We're also going to look at some objections that people bring up to argue against the Sabbath. It's not like a consummate list of objections, but there'll be some interesting objections, which my goal in presenting them to you, like one of them, for example, is the, um, walking around Jericho for seven days and people say, well, how can they walk around Jericho if, you know, the Sabbath, they're breaking the Sabbath. How does that work? And, and it, it's fine. It doesn't break the Sabbath. And I want to present you this objection so that you can see by refuting it together, how you have right judgment with the Sabbath because the, the principles that you extract from that situation with Jericho, for example, you can use for a lot of different arguments on this topic to use right judgment. So we have quite the journey ahead of us, but I hope that you will learn quite a lot today. I really do. As I hope with all of my content that I put out there, it's really designed for for it to be a library, to be a resource, for it to be perspective changing, life changing, and truly the Sabbath is life changing, especially in the world that we live today, which is based on work and stress and so many evil things hope it's going to be edifying for you, so share it with your friends, help them learn the truth, and let's get started. So the Sabbath basically was initiated at creation. Anybody who believes that the Sabbath was created with Moses on at the Exodus, prepare to realize that that's not the truth. In Genesis 2 verse 3, it says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on, on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So God rested on the first seventh day. Now, even right here, even the very beginning, there are people who believe in things like the first earth age, the second creation narrative, and all these different things that are, uh, you know, three earth ages. There's another one I'm forgetting. There's four of them total. But anyway, there's so many beliefs about these days being metaphorical they're actually a thousand years and there was all this history that happened in a pre-cosmic war with Satan. All that stuff is nonsense. I've debunked it before. And a simple proof, as you'll soon see, is that God, that Adam rested with God. Adam rested with God on the seventh day because Adam was created on the sixth day. Now, Adam lived to be less than a thousand years old. So how do you make of that? There's a lot of arguments that even like when you look at an exodus, which we'll look at in a little bit here in a second, as we go through this history, where the whole point is that you have to work six days, rest one day, because in in six days, God created the heavens and the earth and he rested on the seventh. Now, if he rested for a thousand years, think clearly now, and he expects you to rest for a day, that's an inconsistency within God. God is not inconsistent. So there's a lot of reasons why that whole first earth age thing is just nonsense. But nonetheless, just to pop that in there, because this tends to come up with Genesis, especially Genesis 2. So God blessed the seventh day by resting on it, meaning he structured time itself. The way time is supposed to unfold in our reality is structured because of the fact that God did something specific, which is resting. God is sustaining all things. So he rested on that day. Now, of course, the question is, how could God sustain all things and also rest? And that, in and of itself, will help you use right judgment. Because resting on the Sabbath is not cessation of all life and activity. Resting on the Sabbath is resting, which is an interesting thing, especially considering it in light of God resting. But nonetheless, God rested. He blessed the seventh day, and he structured time from the very beginning of creation. The first week had a Sabbath. Man was created on the sixth day and Adam rested with God on the seventh day. Meaning the first Sabbath that ever happened, it was God and man and they were both resting together. That was God's intended plan for the universe. Also, there's an important foreshadowing, which we're going to look at in a future episode, we're going to look at what day was Christ crucified at? Because that tends to... Crucified on. That tends to come up in this discussion of the Sabbath. And it's a very interesting discussion, believe it or not. It's actually really really fascinating. A lot of interesting detective work that you have to do to figure out was he... Now, it's not going to be Friday or Saturday or Thursday or whatever in our days, because as you'll learn later in this series, the notion of a proleptic calendar, meaning a calendar that goes backwards in time based on the structure of time that you have today that notion is nonsense you can't be used beyond 321 a.d this is something that a lot of people don't realize the the proleptic use of calendars meaning our particular days like monday tuesday wednesday and and going backwards in time like thousands of years and saying oh yeah jesus was crucified actually on a tuesday or whatever you can't do that And there's a a very, actually several very good reasons why. And I'm not going to cover them right now. I'll cover them in a future episode. But my point is, we're going to look at the day that Jesus was crucified. Because it's also important that Jesus was crucified on the sixth day. And he rested on the seventh. He rested in the tomb on the seventh to basically finish that creative act of the plan of salvation. So the... Resting on the seventh day of God in the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis 2, is a foreshadowing. It's a picture, if you understand that the Old Testament is constantly painting pictures of the New Testament, where where Christ shows up and, and fills all those pictures up, fulfills them. One of those important pictures is the Sabbath, which is that God rested for you. He rested from his works, and Jesus rested in the tomb because he died for your sins. Very, very significant. So the Sabbath is very intimately related also to the plan of salvation. So keep that in mind. It's very important. But what's the conclusion? The conclusion is that Adam, the first human being ever, kept the Sabbath. Actually, Adam and Eve, because Eve was also created on the sixth day. But the first human beings ever created kept the Sabbath. That's a very significant detail. Now, they kept it at least once. We know that. And presumably... They would keep... Now, you remember that the, the Old Testament is a progressive revelation into the New Testament. So there are things that are they're not written in the Old Testament. Like, well, Adam kept, you know, how many or hundreds of thousands of Sabbaths based on how long he lived. It doesn't say that. However, as you'll soon see as we go through increasing revelation and we see these various biblical figures, we can go back with that lens because we know God is consistent. This is the beauty of the Bible and the beauty of revelation, and something that a lot of people forget. This is, again, just not to go on another tangent, but it's another form of error that people do, which is reading, refusing to read the Old Testament with the New Testament. The Bible increases in revelation. In the beginning, it's very murky. You can't really, there's not a lot of detail. There's important details, but there's not, you know, there's things that are missing that are omitted, so that when you get to the New Testament, you go back and say, ah, now that finally makes a little more sense. But a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people just use the Old Testament as the lens of interpreting the New Testament. So this is a big error, like dispensationalism, like Hebrew roots people, like legalists of all kinds, sacred name people. All these people are stuck in the Old Testament. So you got to be careful. But the point is that... As you'll soon see with these other people that we're going through, the patriarchs, it is very likely now when we go through them that we go back and say, yeah, Adam most likely celebrated the Sabbath. He kept that ordinance that God showed him. This is what you must do. You must rest on the seventh day. He rested with Adam. What a profound... Imagine that God would take his time to rest with you personally, like corporeally with Adam and Eve. Do you think that that was just kind of like a fun, all right, let's just rest for one day and that's it. Or what is more likely? That God rested on the seventh day. He blessed that day. He made Adam and Eve rest with him. This is this is how time is going to be structured, guys. From now on, every seventh day, you're going to rest. That's the more likely reasoning. But you'll see what I mean as we go forward. So Adam kept the Sabbath. Very, very important to understand. Noah. Now, that Noah was around... Give or take 2500 BC, that's when the flood happened around there, give or take maybe a few centuries, who knows. But Noah also very likely kept the Sabbath. In Genesis 6 verse 9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. So according to God, Noah was righteous, meaning not that he was sinless, but he was right in God's eyes, just like Job was righteous, which we're going to look at in, uh, next after Noah. But he was righteous, meaning he was in right standing, meaning he was obedient, because that's what determined righteousness. Now, through the New Testament, we have a propitiatory sacrifice for what's once for all, but we're still called to obey. And this is, again, another another, gosh, so many tangents, but I hate to go off on tangents, but look, this is a common problem with this whole discussion. People think that just because you stand for the Sabbath, that you're suddenly a legalist. You are not saved by obedience. But by being saved, you want to obey. That seems to evade a lot of people. That when you get a new heart by being born again, you crave the truth. You want to know how to be a better Christian. You want to know what God said. You want to know what is the right thing. What is the truth? And so we want to obey. This is the point. It's always been by faith through a propitiatory sacrifice. It's always been by grace. But nonetheless, Noah was righteous, meaning he was an obedient person. Not that he was saved by obedience, but he was an obedient person. He was righteous. He had faith in God and that faith, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It inspired him into obedience. Now, very interesting. We don't really get a sense. We know that Noah offered sacrifices. We don't get a sense that it's very, again, it's not explicit, but read between the lines and use the context of everything else we're building up to understand what's happening here. In Genesis 7 verses 4 through 5, God says, for in seven days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And every living, every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. So God announces to, to Noah seven days before the flood is going to hit the earth. Now, it's very interesting that he uses the number seven. He could have said, hey, in 10 days, in 12 days, in 17 days, in a month. He could have said any number. Why did God specifically choose seven days? The answer is because God maintains what he created at creation, which is the Sabbath, the weekly structure of seven days. And obviously, and what does the next verse tell you? And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was an obedient person, meaning God probably approached him on a Sabbath and said, Listen, in seven days, meaning the next Sabbath, which again, you'll find an interesting pattern with judgments in the Sabbath. Very interesting. Because Jericho was also judged on the Sabbath. But I digress. God came to him. Put this together now. If the Sabbath is the day of rest, God came to Noah on the Sabbath and said, Listen, in seven days, meaning once next week starts, you better get your butt rolling and get ready because I'm going to flood the earth. That makes the most sense. Do Do you see the pattern? That God gives Noah a, an entire full week from the first day of the week, meaning tomorrow, as, as of this particular verse, until the seventh day when they'll get to rest. You see, what, you see the parallel? The, the believers who are saved in the ark, which is a picture of salvation, a lot of pictures there between baptism, being born again, being saved from God's wrath. The believers get to rest on the Sabbath, but the world is actually judged by God. On that Sabbath. Do you see the interesting parallels there? All this stuff you can extract very simply, again, with the lens of the New Testament, with the lens of future things in the Old Testament, which we're gonna look at. Now, another thing to consider is that God wouldn't start this countdown in the middle of the week. Again, God is very systematic, consistent about what he does, very intentional. Why would God approach Noah on the, you know, like the third day of the week, where, where think about it, Noah ha- has only a few days left until the Sabbath, and then he's got to work, it doesn't make any sense. What makes the most sense is that the seven-day imagery, which you'll see soon in just a second, it's, it's throughout Genesis, the Genesis flood narrative, is a piece of evidence that God's maintaining his structure of the week, and that people who are obedient like Noah are also in line with that structure. Genesis 8, verse 10 through 12. He waited another seven days. This is Noah now. Noah waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So we have this pattern where Noah chooses to wait another seven days. Why is he choosing to wait seven days? Do you see the significance of this? There is no word that is wasted in the Bible. The Bible is not telling you some arbitrary number. The Bible is telling you that Noah was in alignment with God's structure of time. He waited seven days. Why? Because he observed the Sabbath. Then he waited another seven days. The, the unit of time is the seven-day week that God instituted at creation. Because Noah was a righteous man, obedient, he followed God's laws. That was passed down from Adam. Which again, go, now you go back to Adam and you say, okay, it's very likely he celebrated the Sabbath and passed that on to his generations. At least the ones that were faithful, not disobedient like Cain and that whole side of the family. But nonetheless, they celebrate, they pass that on because Noah kept the seven-day unit. Now, the seven-day unit, it doesn't mean anything if there's no Sabbath. The seven-day unit is specifically identified by the fact that there is a seventh day that you rest on. Do you see the point? Otherwise, if there was, there was no rest to mark the end of that unit, it would just be an ongoing set of days. There would be no reason to distinguish it as a seven-day week or seven day periods. You see the point? How, how we can see into this with the, with the proper lens? There is no reason why there would be a seven day unit or why Noah would continually wait in periods of seven days unless there was a seven day week with a Sabbath to delineate when that week is over and when the next seven day period would begin. Otherwise, there's no there's no sense to it. So very, very interesting stuff. Again, these are shadows. There's shadows and types of of the future. There's not a lot of detail revealed, but the Bible does tell you enough. If you look deeply and you use the right proper lens, you can see the truth. Noah kept the Sabbath, and obviously it's very clear that he kept the seven-day structure of the week. Because, again, the Sabbath unlocks the structure of time itself. It is what delineates... Seven, 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 as opposed to just this continuous, you know, present moment of days, basically. Very interesting. Now, the next one is Job. And Job very likely lived before Abraham. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm not going to go too much into him today. But for example, he lived to be like 250 years old or something. He was in his 200s, which is older than Abraham. Meaning, so at the very least, he was around the time of Abraham. But very likely, based on his age, he was probably a few generations before Abraham. We can see the decreasing genetics as, you know, after the flood, like Noah lived to be 900 something years old. You know, by the time he got to Job, a couple generations later, people were decreasing in age rapidly. So that's one clue. He was also measuring his wealth and his success. Like the Bible measures his, his success socially in terms of animals in terms of, you know, land, these things are agricultural. And that's, that was around the time of Abraham. It was not, you know, anything later than that. So there's a lot of reason why Job very likely lived even before Abraham. So this is an interesting point because again, it puts it on the time marker. Now you have Adam, then we have Noah before and after the flood. And then Job is kind of the first, first one really mentioned that's after the flood, uh, that's, that's doing stuff. Now, Job was righteous. We know from several places. Job 1, verse 5, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So he was an intercessor for his family. Which, again, this is the the common theme. Noah did this. God was the intercessor in the beginning for Adam and Eve and clothed them with animals and sacrificed. The Bible doesn't tell you you know, what Adam did after that, but very likely they had sacrifices that they offered. I mean, they had, you have the situation with Abel and Cain. So this whole propitiatory thing was passed down. It's always been by faith, by grace through faith, via a propitiatory sacrifice. So Job was an intercessor for his family. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and caused and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So he was very, very careful to obey God's words to make sure that nobody sinned, to make sure that we're right with God. He was very concerned about that. Job 1 verse 8. <clears throat> and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. So according to God, Job was blameless and very upright. He fears God. He's in good standing. Very important. Very important. Job 2 verse 3, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Again he says the same thing, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. There's this fascinating discussion where Satan is basically challenging God's authority in front of the heavenly host, heavenly council, whatever it is. And... The Lord is is defending Job as a person who is obedient and righteous. Very, very important to understand that obedience here. And you're going to see with Abraham, because again, some of these things, it's not spelled out for you in every single book. You have to piece it together. But so far we've seen that Adam celebrated the Sabbath. We saw that Noah celebrated the Sabbath. And now we see the consistent pattern that Job is also righteous in God's eyes. He's obedient, very concerned about doing... He's so concerned that he offers sacrifices every day just in case his kids accidentally said something in their mind or they said something that they didn't mean to. That's how concerned he is about obeying God. Now the question is, since Noah celebrated the Sabbath, would that have been passed down to his generations? And the answer is yes, it would have. Job would have picked up on that because he's after Noah and he's extremely concerned about what God thinks of him. Make sure he's doing the right thing and he's obedient. Is it likely that Job celebrated the Sabbath? The answer is yes. And you're going to see with Abraham, who was also around Job's time, probably a little after, that that is the case. So Job likely kept the Sabbath, even though there aren't any timestamps about it. Now, Abraham is also around 2000 BC, obviously a little bit after Job. But there are some important details about Abraham. In Genesis 20, verse 7, God calls Abraham a prophet. Now then, return the man's wife. This is Abimelech, I believe, that he's speaking to. For he is a prophet. It's very important. God considers Abraham a prophet so that he will pray for you, intercessor, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, Know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So God considers Abraham a prophet, which is very, very important. The, Abraham has a very high standing with God. He's righteous. In Genesis 26, verses 4 through 5, God says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be breath. By the way, offspring here is Singular referring to Christ. Read the New Testament if you're a dispensationalist or Hebrew roots or Unitarian or whatever else other belief under the sun. But so many people don't realize that the promises are fulfilled in Christ. There's no, there's no promises for anybody that are, that is outside of Christ. But moving on. Verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, does this statement You have to ask yourself a very important question. Does this statement, is it all inclusive of what God commands? Or is it just kind of specific? Now, there's no Mosaic law at this point with Abraham. There's no Mosaic law. But we do know that Adam celebrated the Sabbath, Noah respected the Sabbath, Job was very obedient, meaning he, like Abraham, obeyed God's commandments and statutes and laws and Abraham was righteous and he obeyed God's commandments and statutes and laws in his charge there's nothing in this statement that suggests there that basically there's something that God said like the sabbath that wasn't being done it's an all-inclusive statement that's my point so very likely Abraham Obeyed and followed the Sabbath, resting on the seventh day. It's not mentioned, but again, deductive reasoning is very clear that Abraham was righteous and obedient. And God makes it a point to to say that Abraham kept all of his laws and statutes and tenets and charge. So is the Sabbath something that God considers a commandment, a law, a charge? Well, yes, because not only did he institute it at creation, the very beginning, and he made Adam rest. That means Adam being our federal representative, God's intention was for all of humanity to do this. Do you see the point? It's so important. And as you'll see later through progressive revelation, the Sabbath was always one of God's moral commands for humanity. Very, very important. But very likely, Abraham kept the Sabbath. Now we move closer and closer to... Jesus' time, and the next important thing is the Exodus, which is around 1400 BC. Now, there's some very interesting things to note before Mount Sinai. In Exodus 5, verse 4 through 5, there's this interchange between the Pharaoh and Moses. And it says, but the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their, from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Now, the original word here is Shabbat, which is interesting because this is, again, this is before the Exodus, and Moses and Aaron are basically trying to get the people to rest from their labor so they can go and sacrifice to God, and the Pharaoh is opposing that, so there's, there's a shadow there of something. It's not very clear, but there's a shadow there of something. In Exodus 16, Verses 22 through 30, we read about the manna. Now, this is, again, this is before Mount Sinai. It's very important. It is three months before Mount Sinai. Because we'll see, for example, in Exodus 19, it says, Israel at Mount Sinai, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So, three months after they had left Egypt is when they came to uh, Mount Sinai. But now, before they were doing that, let's go back to Exodus 16, they were collecting manna. And look what look what God reveals to you through Scripture. It's really, truly brilliant. Verse 22, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. <clears throat> and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Highlight. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. Which, by the way, that shows you that the Sabbath is from morning to morning, and the day is reckoned from morning to morning. But that's a future topic that we're going to be looking at. Very controversial in uh, the Sabbath community, but it's the truth. Verse 24, so they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded him, and and it did not stink, and there was no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. So God intentionally structured the manna to pour out from heaven six days out of the week, and on a seventh day to not, to rest. Very consistent, very intentional. Verse 26, six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Oops. Let's see what God has to say about that. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Do you see now with Abraham the significance of when God said that Abraham kept his commandments and his laws and his statutes and his charge? God is not leaving any room there for you to think, well, there's something that, God commanded later that Abraham didn't do No, Abraham worshipped God and he believed in God. He had faith in God. He obeyed God. And that means he kept the Sabbath. Because, as you can see, before Mount Sinai, when they were collecting manna, God gave them the manna in six-day patterns with the seventh day being rest. And, of course, they got more manna on the sixth day because God provides for you. That was the whole point. And some of them didn't have faith in that. They broke the Sabbath, and God was very angry because you broke his commandment. Very interesting. Verse 29, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. It's a gift. Remember what Jesus says? We're going to get to it in just a second, but he's the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a gift, but nonetheless, a gift you have to respect Therefore, remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. This is all three months before Mount Sinai. Now, if this is the case, we can go back again to people like Abraham and use deductive reasoning because God is consistent. This is the brilliance behind the Bible. God is 100% consistent. So even if you don't have the full information on a particular book, When you get more information, you can go back and say, yes, I can assume that's true because God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't lie. He doesn't vacillate. He's not inconsistent in any way. He's completely consistent. So I can fill that part out. So to the Israelites before Mount Sinai, they were made to rest on the seventh day. They were reminded of this structure because why? Because they were in Egypt. Egypt had a different calendar. They didn't have rest days. That's why Moses like, or uh, Pharaoh was like, you're making them rest? What is this nonsense? Think about it. The ancient world had no concept of rest. Why would you rest? No God is going to provide for you unless it's the real God who has the power to do so. But every day was a work day. So they had a different calendar. They had forgotten themselves after 400 years. They had forgotten the traditions of Abraham. And they're just, they were a lost people that needed to be re- reminded of what God did. Cares about and what he commands. That's why it says, remember the Sabbath. That's why he commanded, remember the Sabbath, because people forget it. They forgot it after Abraham, and they've forgotten it, of course, today. So all this stuff is very important. What the conclusion is, is that although the law was officially given in quotations on Sinai, it existed and it was expected and practiced before Sinai. Do you see the importance? God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, but why did he do that? Because people had forgotten everything. By that point, it was cultural amnesia. But does that mean that the moral law was created on Mount Sinai? Or was that just an expression of God's eternal character throughout time, from before eternity? God has always been the same, about not killing, not stealing, not coveting, not lying, All these things are part of God's eternal moral code. Well, part of that is also resting, which identifies God as the lawgiver of the Ten Commandments, which we talked about in the first uh, episode, why the Sabbath matters. The Sabbath is the unique key identifier for the Ten Commandments as a whole, as a prescription for your moral behavior, being tied to the person who actually created the world because a false God could tell you, you shall have no other gods besides me. A false God could tell you like the Catholic church could tell you there's no salvation outside the church. You must pay allegiance. Don't steal because the Catholic church says don't steal. Don't, you know, covet because the Catholic church says don't covet. Well, who's the author of the moral code? It's God. And how do you know that? Because of the Sabbath, and that we talked about that in the first episode. The Sabbath identifies God as the lawgiver, as the specific one who gives the law, because it is the only law, part of the Ten Commandments, that is uniquely connected to God as the creator. God rested on the seventh day. Why? Because he created the world. Therefore, you must rest as part of the moral code. Do you see how brilliant it is? It authenticates God as the lawgiver. But the law always existed. Just because it was given on Mount Sinai, on tablets, doesn't mean that it was created on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was an expression of God's eternal character. So the Sabbath existed. It was practiced. It was expected long before Mount Sinai. Very, very important. Now, now we come to Jesus and the Sabbath in modern biblical times. At least it was around 30 AD to 31 AD. His his uh, crucifixion was in thirty one A D. His ministry started in twenty seven A D. Late twenty seven. Now in Matthew, there's we're going to look at all these different basic situations where he's questioned by the Pharisees about the Sabbath. There's a lot of parallel texts that we're going to be looking at because he's he had a lot of situations with the Pharisees where they were. You know, trying to catch him working on the Sabbath and, and being legalist about it. And these situations reveal to us God's purpose for the Sabbath for mankind and how to use right judgment, not to swerve to the left or to the right, not to go towards legalism or permissivism where it's done away with. Very, very important, mostly for legalists because that was the issue of the time with the works righteousness religion that had started with the Pharisees and the rabbinic schools and all these different things that started after the first temple was destroyed. Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law, how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Very important. You would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So much is going on in this interchange It's crazy, and it behooves us to really study this so we understand more complex things like when we go back in the Old Testament, or I should say less obvious things, less obvious things that are very easily misinterpreted. So we have to study Christ's words carefully. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, meaning he's the one who determines how things go. He's the one who interprets the law correctly. And what he's saying is, you're not using right judgment. If you understood what it means to have that God wants mercy, not sacrifice, It is, it behooves you to understand that God wants good, good judgment, good character, mercy, forgiving one another, being merciful. David entered the um, tabernacle and ate the bread of the presence, which he wasn't supposed to eat, but he was hungry, he was dying of hunger. And there was a greater need there, even though it was not lawful. According to the law, there is grace and there's mercy. This is such a profound thing because again, the Sabbath is supposed to be a delight. It was made for man. And a lot of people think that there's a lot of these legalistic binding things with the Sabbath. And people think that if you argue for the Sabbath, then you're suddenly a legalist, which again is the other side of the dialectic. So this is the heart of our creator. Use right judgment, Understand, mercy is more important than sacrifice. Now he didn't. Now notice this, which is very important, which you're going to see in all of these interchanges. Not a single time, not once, did Jesus ever respond to the Pharisees, who were trying to trap him with legalism. He never responded to them. The Sabbath is done away with. You fools! It's been done away with. You learned the truth. Not once. Not a single time. In fact. He upheld the law. He just asked them to have right judgment. That's what the issue is. It wasn't the Sabbath. It was having right judgment. And this is why this series, I'm motivated to make this series and why it's so important. You have to have right judgment. You're going to see as we go through these episodes how wrong, how many people are wrong about this. Unfortunately, it really is. It's unfortunate. But it is what it is. We're in the end times and... Deception is at a maximum. Now, there's a parallel verse for this in Mark 2, verse 27, where same same situation, but then uh, he says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man, for the Sabbath. When, when Jesus, when God, basically Jesus rested with Adam in, in the beginning of creation, that was a gift. Imagine resting with God in a perfect world. I mean, that is like unfathomable but that was also a picture of the future of the final future <clears throat> where God will be with man in a renewed creation we're back in paradise. We're resting where we've entered God's rest. That's what that was a picture of. It's brilliant how God works. He does things. He, he accomplishes like 50 things, 5,000, who knows how many with one thing. That's, that's the brilliance of typology and of studying the relationships with the Bible. It's really, truly really profound. But nonetheless, that was a picture. It was a picture of the future of of God resting with man. It was a gift. It's the gift. And in in a broader sense, it's the gift of salvation, which is consummated at the end. Our salvation is one and done, but it's also incomplete in the sense that we don't have our bodies yet. Creation is groaning. There's evil in the world. The Bible and the New Testament impress upon you this feeling that salvation is still yet to be completed. Not in the sense that you can't feel secure about your salvation, but the process isn't done until Jesus returns. And at that point, salvation will be completed. We have entered God's rest. What a beautiful thing. And that was all pictured in the Sabbath in the very beginning um, of creation. God also says to Moses, remember that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. It's a gift. Repeatedly, God is telling you this is a gift. Have a delight. You know, you see the Sabbath as a delight, don't carry a burden. It's a gift from God to you to intentionally rest with him on your mind. And in the future, when he returns, we're going to rest with him for eternity. That's the whole point, just to rest and enjoy. No more striving. The Sabbath is a way to picture that eternity, to picture that future, that future reality, which is in Christ. And that will be our final episode in the series, which is how the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. Now, Matthew 12 is another situation this is verses 9 through 13, a man with a withered hand. He went on from there and entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said, he said to them, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to them. Stri- then he said to the man, "Stretch out your hand." And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. So again, what is the issue at heart here? Did he say, "You fools, the Sabbath has been done away with"? No, he said, "The the Sabbath is. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath." He upheld the Sabbath. The issue was, as usual, right judgment. The Pharisees were putting something that was. Much more valuable, which is the healing of a person and the displaying of the glory of God through the Messiah. This has infinite value. They were subverting that with their legalism. They weren't using right judgment. There was a priority to be had here. Yes, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but at the same time, God is present and about to heal somebody, and you're telling God not to work. You're trying to tell God what to do with, 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 with your understanding of the law. Who's the one who created the law? That's why Jesus said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning you have no clue who you're talking to. You're trying to interpret the law to me, who I created the law. Use right judgment, you fools. That's the consistent message in all of this. And that is the message for today as well. To all the people who are legalist about the Sabbath and all these different things, especially the Jews who don't have the grace to save them. I mean, they they have grace available, but they don't have grace in their teachings, and so, so they're bound to be legalists and be afraid of of utmost perfect obedience. Otherwise, you know, they're in trouble. Legalism was rebuked by Christ because legalism does not employ right judgment. So this is the issue is right judgment. Compare this, for example, to the Talmud, where, I mean, I didn't pull up the specific verses. You can look them for yourself, but there are things in there that talk about don't rescue a Gentile if he's drowning you know, these prohibitions against helping Gentiles. Whereas Jesus tells you, yeah, it's lawful to help and heal somebody on the Sabbath. That's a good thing because life and truth are the priorities. It's not about perfect obedience. It's about life and truth. Somebody's life is valuable. If they're in danger, help them, especially even if it's on a Sabbath, help them out. Don't be legalist to, to the point where you would basically be an accomplice in somebody dying. So so foolish. But again, if you, if you don't have the understanding of grace and you don't have right judgment, then you will com- commit these errors, which the Pharisees were doing. There's a parallel story in Mark, uh, chapter three, verses one through five, a man with a withered hand. Let's see what it says. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. <laughs> They're just always watching him so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, of course. They had nothing to say. And he he looked around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and he was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, which, by the way, were Edomites, I talk about that in my documentary on why the Jews are not God's chosen people. Interesting little tidbit. Uh, Against him, how to destroy him. So what was, again, we see a different picture of the same situation, which is why the gospel accounts are so important to use in comparison. What what was going on here? He looked around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. God was grieved at the hardness of their heart because they were so blind to doing good because of them trying to be self-righteous, trying to obey just so they could be righteous in God's eyes, so much so that they they discounted the golden rule, which is help your neighbor as you would want to be helped. Treat your neighbor as you want to be treated. Do good. Do be just. help Help the poor. Help the people who are needing help. Help the needy. You have basically nullified one of the main principles of morality just so you can be righteous, which is an inversion of the law. Would you see the problem with this and what Jesus is saying? Again, he's not calling out anything against the Sabbath. He's calling them out for their hardness of heart and for their right judgment. Use right judgment. This is the consistent theme that we see throughout these situations. He never says the law is done away with. In fact, he actually says the opposite. He says that not one jot or tittle will be done away with and that he came to fulfill the law. Luke 4, verse 16. And Jesus rejected Nazareth. And he came up to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Did Jesus celebrate the Sabbath? Of course he did. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. What does that mean? It means that the Sabbath is not going away. It's part of God's moral plan for humanity, as you can hopefully start to see by now through all this history. Luke uh, 13, verses 13 through 17. Again, another situation with the Pharisees. A woman with a disabling spirit. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, ignorant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So people were still celebrating the Sabbath, obviously, but the issue is right judgment. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Powerful, powerful moment. Now, an interesting note is he calls this woman a daughter of Abraham. Now, if you understand the lens of the New Testament, where we are children of God by faith— And the people who are actually children of Abraham are the people who are by faith. What is Jesus saying here? This woman who is a child of God, who believes in God genuinely, who has faith, meaning she's a child of Abraham, because Abraham is the one who had faith. That is who we're being identified with. A faithful person who's genuinely faithful is being healed by God and glorifying God to other people so that they might believe too. This is... A supernatural work that's happening, and the Pharisees are blind to it. And not only that, they're hypocrites because they do things that are necessary on the Sabbath, like untying your ox so it can have some water or food so it can eat. Those things are necessary. But if, if you believe that Sabbath is cessation of all activity, or you're, you're not using right judgment, and you're trying to use it to accuse people, your heart is wicked. You're not truly a child of Abraham. You're not born again. You're not transformed. You don't have a new heart. See, you see what's going on here? The constant theme. The constant theme is to have right judgment. And the lesson from this particular one is that there are certain things that need to be done on the Sabbath. Like helping your ox have water. Apply that to modern situations. Whatever that means. In Luke 14, we see also another situation that shows emergencies as being important. Healing of a man on the Sabbath, Luke 14. On one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, <laughs> always always giving him the stink eye, man, I swear. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? So if you have one of your animals that has fallen into a ditch and you need to get him out, that's an emergency. Are you going to say, well, I can't do that. It's the Sabbath. That's what Jesus is saying here. And they could not reply to these things because because they knew they were guilty. They didn't have anything to say. Because, yeah, you, you would do that. You would rescue your animal on a Sabbath day. And, and you're being a hypocrite if that's the case. Because you're accusing somebody, let alone God on earth, who you're blind to, who's doing a healing, a, a miraculous supernatural healing on the Sabbath day to heal somebody and for them to be able to glorify God. It's all about God's glory. You see you see the, the, the theme here? The theme is Jesus is glorifying God through all that he does. The Pharisees are glorifying themselves through their self-righteousness of interpreting the law. The the law is meant to be interpreted in such a way that it glorifies God. Not that it makes you righteous or glorifies you in any way. And this was the issue, the constant tandem, the constant ping-pong match between them, where Jesus reveals these things and they're saying, No, we're going to accuse you, and he reveals to them the truth that they're hypocrites. Very, very interesting. But all this stuff gives us context for how to really rightly interpret the Sabbath and how Jesus sees it. Now, let's move to John. John chapter 5. This is the pool. It's uh, uh, healing at the pool. This is 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there, in, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up while I am going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Uh-oh, I bet you there's some Pharisees around here. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. <laughs> Even though something supernatural had happened, this is just the profoundly hard, profound hardness of heart. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. And I am working. What a profound statement. Verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. All the legalists and Unitarians and whatever, people who deny the divinity of Christ or the Trinity. Read this again carefully. Jesus was making himself equal with God all those subordinationist passages that you like to quote, make sure you compare them and you understand the mystery of the incarnation. Because Jesus is God. He revealed himself as equal with God throughout the scriptures. Very, very important. That's a whole other can of worms. But as you can see, the issue is right judgment as always. Even when they saw a supernatural thing, They still were trying to accuse and be legalist about it. They're just trying to kill with the law rather than to make alive. Do you see the point? God is life, life and truth. And they were using the law to kill. That's why Jesus said, by the way, that their father is the devil. Because the devil used the power of the law to kill mankind. He had as long as Jesus didn't until Jesus came, the devil had power over death because of the law and he had a way to accuse people because there was no propitiatory sacrifice. That's why when Jesus completed the cross, the Bible tells you in revelation, the devil's been bound, been bound for this millennial period, which is happening right now, by the way, it's not a future period. The devil's been bound, meaning not like his satanic activity has stopped. His ability to accuse has been stopped. there's no more accusation. You can't accuse God's elect. This is the profound truth. But nonetheless, they were of the fa- their, their father, the devil. They were trying to use the law to kill rather than to have good judgment and and bring life, which is what is the constant thing. But Jesus says something very important here. In verse 17, he says, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is a very, very profound statement. Now, Jesus had a track record of healing and doing good on the Sabbath, and so that's kind of one way of looking at it. But another very interesting and, and profound way is a little deeper way. There is a lot written in the Targums, which are old documents, commentaries, basically. They're very old, but they're, they're useful to see what people at the time thought. The Targums tried to answer the fundamental question of how can God rest on the Sabbath while also sustaining the world, because the the Jewish thinking of the time was well, God is sustaining all things all the time, meaning He's constantly working. But then it says God rested on the seventh day. So how is that possible? So that calls into the into this other concept, which is called the Memra. I talk about it in my series on the Trinity, which is in uh, the Memra means the Word. There was this idea that there was the Word, which was a personified. God, remember the Jews believed in two powers in heaven for many centuries, where there was the angel of the Lord, there was the Memra, and there was the incorporeal Yahweh that you couldn't see, but obviously was there. So they believed in this duality within God. Of course, in the New Testament, you realize it's a Trinity. It's a three-person existence of one God in three persons. But nonetheless, the idea of plurality within God is not a Christian invention. It is very, very old because of what the Old Testament reveals to you with the angel of Yahweh and and God walking in the garden. So the Jews struggled with this. So they came up with the solution that, that God is sustaining all things, but then he has kind of a corporeal manifestation that is doing these things as well, which is the angel of Yahweh, who is also God or the word, the memra. This is why John 1 is so critical and why John was actually playing towards these attitudes of the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God separation, but the word was God and the word is the one who created all things. All these things are old Jewish attitudes that were around that time. And so this idea that he's, my father is working until now and I am working, which is, it's such a profound statement to point to that. Like God is sustaining all things. And also Jesus is working in person. God is a worker. He's sustaining all things. And he's also in the world, working and doing things through the second person, Jesus, in uh, verses John 5 through, what do we say? 18, 1 through 17. Very, very important to understand that God has a manifestation in the world. Now, don't read too much into that word manifestation, because I'm not not saying anything new-agey here. I'm just saying there's a God that you don't see, and there's a God that you do see. They're both the same God. This is the mystery of the Trinity. And Jesus points to that, in all these attitudes that we're circling of, again, the two powers in heaven, the word, the memra, People were trying to figure out what's going on, and he's pointing that reality, authenticating himself as God and the physical presence of God on earth, which is really profound. Now, John 7 also has some very interesting things to say about the law and the difference between the moral law and the ceremonial law. This is an interchange, again, another interchange between him and the Pharisees, They're at the Feast of Booths in John 7. And so this is 19 through 24. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? <laughs> Meaning, which one of you is righteous? Who, who can possibly accuse me of anything? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you marvel at it. You all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath day a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the recurring theme of all of these interchanges. Now, what is this talking about? Well, Genesis 17, verse 12 He who is eight days among, old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. This is repeated in Leviticus. And on the eight, This is uh, chapter 12, verse 3. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So what does this mean? Well, it means that basically some babies that were born would end up being circumcised on the Sabbath. And that's work. You're doing work. But you're doing that so that the law of Moses isn't broken. That's what Jesus is pointing to. You. You look, there's already, by default, a situation where you're doing something on the Sabbath so that one principle isn't broken. Again, he's using these there's there's a literary tool which is throughout the Bible, and it's it's often used by Jesus very wittily, very, very intelligently in his parables, in his interchanges with with the Pharisees. It's called the lesser to the greater. It's a very common literary device meaning he'll give you an example so that you you understand like this is like this, so then this must be like this. How much greater is this than this if this is true? This is this is a common literary device. For example, if you untie your ox so that it can have water on the Sabbath, that's true. That's a true. That's why it could they couldn't respond to anything because it was true because they do that. How much more important is it to heal somebody on the Sabbath? Especially if they're a human being. How much more valuable are human beings than oxes and sheep? If you obey the law of Moses, circumcision, so that it's not broken on the Sabbath, even though that technically that's a work, you're, you're still doing something. Nevertheless, you're trying to uphold a principle. How much more important is it to have right judgment and... To heal and to glorify God and to do the things that are pleasing to God. That are promoting faith and and glorification and worship of God on the Sabbath. How much more important is it to do that? It's a lesser to the greater. And so that's what's going on here with, with these things. So certain necessary things have to happen. Like in this case, circumcision was on the eighth day. And sometimes that would be a Sabbath. Okay, well, that's necessary. You have to do it just like you have to let your ox out for water because otherwise it's going to possibly you know, get hurt or whatever else. It needs water. It needs food. There are certain things that need to be done. So use right judgment. So now, what do we take from all these things, all these different situations? Hopefully, I've given you ample enough evidence that you can see how Jesus responded to the issue of the Sabbath. First off, we know that Jesus healed and preached on the Sabbath. He did good things on the Sabbath. He upheld the Sabbath and he kept the Sabbath. He often rebuked the Pharisees for not having right judgment about the Sabbath. He never said the Sabbath is done away with. He upheld the law. His emphasis was always on right judgment. And again, there's not a single instance of him ever saying that it was changed or done away with. Never. He always upheld it, but he insisted that you have right judgment, and which they didn't. They didn't have right judgment. They were using the law to kill not to bring life. It's the law of liberty, James calls it, in first chapter of James. It's the law of liberty, because it is good. The Sabbath is a gift by God to man, not a burden. That's what Jesus says. It's made for man. The Sabbath is not about complete cessation of all activity or perfect obedience. Even in Jesus' time, which many people think, oh, they were legalists. Well, yeah, there was the rabbinical schools. But even in Jesus' time, obviously... Jesus was a Jewish Sabbath-practicing Israelite that was very much upholding the law. But even in his time, it wasn't about having absolutist perfect obedience. It was about having right judgment because there were situations that would put you in conflict between two things. This is the point of the entire Bible, right judgment, why I focus so much on having a narrow road approach neither to the right nor to the left. You must understand how to have right judgment because there will always be a conflict of two things. In in Jesus' time, circumcision and the Sabbath. Well, we're going to uphold one principle so it's not broken. Well, in that case, you know, if that's the case, then healing and doing good and glorifying God on the Sabbath is not wrong. If you can let your animal out because you need to so it doesn't die, or if you rescue your animal in an emergency so it doesn't die, then use right judgment. There are certain things that need to be done. That's the point from all of these things. God is very gracious, full of steadfast love. He allowed many things, like David eating the bread of the presence, even though that was against the law. It was in a particular situation that an exception had to be allowed. David was running from his enemies, and he was was starving, so he ate the bread of the presence. Was that against the law? Yes, but God is merciful. God did not accuse and condemn David because God's heart is for life and truth and mercy. Remember, I desire mercy more than sacrifice or not sacrifice, mercy, not sacrifice. But either way, mercy is the thing. That's what God wants. He wants us to be merciful to one another because he's merciful. And when you're using the law to condemn so much so that you ignore the situation then you have not gotten the law you're you're blinded by it you, you you are blinded by your own zealousness and your own self-righteousness that you are not using the law to help and to heal matthew 9 verse 13 one more time go and learn what this means i desire mercy and not sacrifice for i came not to call the righteous but sinners God is not wanting perfect performance. This is actually quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. One is faith and wisdom and really a relationship with God, whereas the other is works, righteousness. Of course, God never justified anybody by works but they were turning all these things into works righteousness through their own efforts. Oh, if you do this, if you do that, then now you're going to be righteous. As opposed to what God really wants, which is knowledge of God. What does that mean? To know somebody, to have a relationship with them. If you're accusing the Messiah and the apostles for doing good on the Sabbath, you obviously do not have a relationship with God. And this is the issue. So, This is where today's Jews get still tripped up because they don't have grace. They're caught up in legalism. There's so many silly situations, which, uh, you know, we'll talk about in just a second. But Christians also get caught up with this because either they go towards the legalist side and become legalists about the Sabbath. Which we're going to address all these things like, you know, it starts from evening to evening and it's only the lunar or you got to say Shabbat and oh it's, you know... The Trinity's pagan, and we're Unitarians, and you know, oh, so so many things that are tied into it that are unnecessary that drift into legalism. And then there's Christians who say, "Well, it's done away with. We—that's all. Don't don't Judaize. That's for the Jewish people. That was on Mount Sinai, which is so not the truth." Hopefully, you've seen that by now, and you'll see it over and over again as we go into more history in the future. As we talk about um, when the Sabbath was celebrated, how it was changed. You're going to see all this stuff. This will be an incredibly comprehensive series. But now there's an objection, which is our first objection, which is Exodus 35, verse 3. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling on the Sabbath day. You shall kindle no fire. Now, today, today's Orthodox Jews take this to be hyper-literal. And there's an example I read in a Quora forum reading about this, just various Sabbath situations, where this rabbi basically was waiting to cross the street and the light had turned red and he he couldn't push the button because it would be considered work and you couldn't ask anybody either because that was against you know you can't that's work you're asking somebody to work for you to push the button so his legalism had trapped him in a situation where he was basically just sitting there and hoping that people would get his predicament or you know wait till the to the light well, until somebody would come and push the button so the crosswalk would turn on and not be a red hand. But either way, silly situations like these are exactly the reason. It's exactly what God doesn't want you to do. But again, if, you, if you're if you missing a relationship with God, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God desires relationship. But the Jews don't have a way to have that today. Unfortunately, that's why they need to be evangelized with the gospel. They don't have a way to have a relationship with God. Only Christianity can offer you that because only Christianity has a proper sacrifice that allows you to have a relationship with God. As per Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, the new covenants where God puts his law on your heart, which is another thing we'll talk about. But nonetheless, you know, some find ways around it. Like some Jews will find a way, like there are Sabbath settings on appliances or, you know, start heat, start your heat before the Sabbath so that it runs through the Sabbath. That way, maintenance is less work than progress. You know, there's so many considerations and silly things. And the question is, is, did God intend for you to be an absolutist? Obviously not, as we see from the countless situations with the Pharisees. Did God intend for you to be cold during the winter with this particular verse? Like, no, don't kindle any fire. Meaning when the winter comes, that's it, you're SOL, like you're basically, what are we going to do? I mean, we can't kindle a fire on the Sabbath, so I guess we're just going to be cold. Is that what God intended for you to experience on the Sabbath? How can the Sabbath be a delight if you interpret this literally during the winter? It's not a delight, you're freezing to death. It's a dangerous situation, actually, depending on where you live. So God did not intend that for you. That must not be the truth, then. The way that people are interpreting it. Also, God did not intend for you to find clever ways around his law like the Talmud does in many situations. All these little interchanges between various rabbis and, well, if you do this this way, it's not considered a breaking law. But if you do that, there's countless commentaries that are interpreting the law with all these little nooks and crannies and little situations, trying to find clever ways around God's law, when really they're missing the entire spirit of the law. They're missing the entire point, which is that the Sabbath is a delight, the Sabbath is made for man, and to use right judgment. So all these things are wrong. The point is to use right judgment. Now, if we look at the context of this verse in Exodus, again, these objections are brought to you so that you can see and learn how to use right judgment. Because a lot of people use this either to Object against the Sabbath via like a straw man argument. Like, see, pff, the Sabbath tells you to kindle no fire. So that's ridiculous. Like, obviously, you know, that's not the case anymore. Well, context. So you're arguing against the straw man. That's not what God is telling you to do. God, this is not, it's not a literal like day and age where if it's the winter and you've got your heat on, you're breaking the Sabbath. That's That's not what this is about. Again, God doesn't want you to be a legalist and absolutist. He wants to have right judgment. But nonetheless, people were in the wilderness when this was given. So kindling a fire meant what? It meant cooking. It meant doing work like metallurgy, crafts. Fires were central to to the system at the time. It was a very primitive system. So kindling a fire in this case is basically don't work on that day, man. Don't be working. Doesn't mean don't keep yourself warm with blankets or, you know, if it was winter, I mean, it depends. The climate there is very different during the winter. But the point is, this is not meant to be taken in an absolute sense. It's meant to refer to work because that's what work meant. Now, if you, again, progressive revelation, Jeremiah 17 verse 21, thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it by the gates of Jerusalem. So as society expanded from the wilderness being in tents and camps to having cities, the meaning of work expanded also. God did not say in Jeremiah, don't kindle a fire on the Sabbath. God said, don't bear a burden on the Sabbath. What did people do? Well, they were mercantile during that time. They were you know, moving their wares to and fro, selling things, moving things all the time having wheelbarrows, having their donkeys, all these things were burdens. Don't carry a burden, meaning don't work. The definition of work expanded, meaning the whole point with the whole fire thing, kindling a fire, it's not about warming yourself on the Sabbath. That's nonsense. It is about working and committing to selfish ambition and to doing things that make you forget that God is providing for you. This is the key. It's a consistent theme. And of course, there's exceptions like doing good, emergencies, necessities that we talked about previously. So people use this to read into it way too literally without context. And the people who argue against the Sabbath by using this and saying, see, this is just an antiquated thing. They're also not using context because God is not asking you to be an absolutist about this. The point is that both are wrong. Both of the sides of the dialectic are wrong. The ones who are against the sabbath and saying see it's done away with this is all just for the jews in the wilderness doing antiquated things they're wrong that's not what this is talking about the consistent theme is don't work god provides for you on that day rest intentionally and the ones who are legalists especially the talmudic jews they're also wrong orthodox jews wrong but they're wrong because they don't have grace they don't have the spirit of law written on their hearts the only way you can do that is by being born again That's what Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31.2, when God will write the law on your heart. Now, let's let's go to Joshua for Jericho, the seven days situation. This is the judgment of Jericho. Now, the Jericho was set up inside, outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. Now, very important here to understand is that this is, again, keeping that seventh day unit of time. This was after the Exodus, so obviously the seven-day week was very much in in their foreheads. And one of these days is a Sabbath. So the question is, was carrying trumpets and weapons and walking around Jericho breaking the Sabbath? How do we deal with that? And the reason I bring it up to to your attention is so you can see and extract from the situation what it means to have right judgment. It's not breaking the Sabbath and understanding why is very important. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Samuel, and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great del- has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Same as Hosea, same as what Jesus quoted: I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the knowledge of the Lord and not burnt offerings. Obedience in the voice of the Lord is better than offerings and sacrifices. Because these are things that you do, they're external. The whole point of these things, by the way, was for an internal reality. They were pointing to Christ, which is the sacrifice that convicts your heart of re- into repentance and faith. They're all It's always about the spiritual things. But if you're just doing sacrifices thinking, Oh, there you go, my obligation is done, now I can do whatever I want, or whatever, you're missing the whole point. What does God want? He wants obeying his voice, obedience. You're not saved by obedience. He just wants faithfulness and an effort to obey. And of course, you can only truly obey when you get a new heart and a new spirit and a new life, when God writes his law on your heart and convicts you. But nonetheless, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of rams. Very, very important. So obedience is more important to God than just doing all these various sacrifices. That's what God wants. He wants obedience. We read Hosea 6, verse 6. He wants mercy, not sacrifice. The theme is very clear that God wants obedience. Obeying God is the highest good possible. If God tells you to do something and you obey it, especially if it's a like a real-time command, i.e. with Jericho, like, hey, you, you need to judge this city. I've determined for them to be judged. You're going to do this, this, and this. And on the seventh day, they're going to be destroyed. Okay. Like God has determined that we need to do it. Obeying God is the highest principle you can respect. Remember the principles. The circumcision was done on the Sabbath. You have two principles in conflict. Well, One of them is preferred over the other. So that the circumcision uh, that God gave through Abraham was not broken. Now, what does that mean? That means that when you have two principles in conflict with one another... Right judgment is understanding which one of these to pick is the right one. This is right judgment, which the Pharisees did not have. In this particular case, Jericho needed to be judged. God had determined for them to be judged. God is the author of what is good and evil. He's the author of the moral law. So if he tells you to do something on a particular day, then obeying God is the highest good. Imagine if they said, well, you know, God, that's the Sabbath, so we can't do that. Can you imagine? Of course, they didn't say that, but that's the equivalent of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are basically telling God how to interpret the law when God is the one who created the law for a very specific purpose. So this is what's going on. We're we're dealing with right judgment and it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath and the highest good, what's the highest good possible, is to obey God, to obey God and to, to do what he says. And Israelites were worshiping by doing these things, they were worshiping God by going around Jericho with the trumpets and it was an act of worship every day. Now the Sabbath that was the final day and and Jericho was judged Now interestingly, the Sabbath again seems to be the point of the the day when people get judged. Now it's not always written that way, but we have a couple of events and that's just a very interesting thing like with Noah. With Jericho and so on now Jericho also another thing to keep in mind is Jericho is very small People estimate it was about Give or take 2000 feet That they were walking so the journey was not significant It was a necessary thing that needed to happen. God had determined it To reveal his glory and obeying god is the higher good of the two sing of the two things in conflict You have the sabbath don't do any work But god has commanded you to do something which one is the higher good? God has commanded you to do something on that day. So you're going to do it because that is a good thing. God can do no wrong. The things that he commands you are the highest good. So therefore it is good to do what God has given you on the Sabbath. So distinguishing, here's the thing, here's the point to take from all this before we go to the final thing with the apostles, distinguishing actions that serve ourselves versus actions that serve and glorify God is the issue. People, when the, when the Israelites were encircling Jericho, they were serving and worshiping God. They were obeying God. That Just because it was a Sabbath doesn't matter. You're obeying God. You're doing worship through what you're, what you're doing. Very, very important. But the Pharisees were serving themselves with their self-righteousness, with accusing, with trying to look it in front of everybody else, you know, whatever, trying to basically bring death through the law. They were self-righteous. They were trying to tell God how to interpret the law. That is selfish, and that is evil. So two situations, very, very different outcomes. Now, apostles and disciples. There's a lot of stuff in the book of Acts that we can look at, and this is going to be our kind of our final point, really, because in future episodes, I'm going to look at more history from after the church was started in, you know, like the 2nd, 3rd century, to all the way into the modern age. We're going to look at a lot of history with that as how the evolution of the Sabbath and the change of the Sabbath happened and all these various things into the current events that are going on with the Sabbath. But nonetheless, apostles and disciples, let's read Luke 23, verse 56. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So the women who basically went and saw what was going on with the tomb of Jesus before they prepared spices they rested on the Sabbath. So the people who were disciples of Jesus obeyed the Sabbath. Luke twenty four one begins with, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. What does that mean? That means that the Sabbath day in question, which we're going to get back to this in the episode on... um. What day was Jesus crucified? That'll be in the future sometime. But what's the point? The point is that it tells you that they rested on the Sabbath. And then the very next chapter begins with, on the first day of the week, early at dawn, they came to bring their spices. Meaning that the Sabbath that they rested on was the seventh day. And Jesus was crucified on the sixth day. But that's another episode. We're going to look deeply into that. So you have plenty of evidence. Nonetheless it makes no sense for them to rest on the sabbath then that's you know several days of waiting and then on the first day suddenly they come it doesn't it's not as continuous that, that that doesn't make sense in terms of the continuity of the text there's other evidence too that supports this that they rested on the seventh day but they rested on the sabbath that's the plain reading of the text meaning the disciples of Jesus obeyed the sabbath now, another thing I didn't put in here, which uh, I will cite, and you can look for it yourself. I forget which verse in Matthew 24. But when Jesus warns about the um, judgment on Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, this is very important. He war- He's talking to people who are believers, who are going to be disciples, who are going to be Christians, who are going to believe. He's warning future generations that will be believers those are his sheep he's telling you ahead of time he's warning people and one of the things he says is pray that your flight is not on a sabbath day meaning pray that you're not pregnant or it's you know on a sabbath now why would he say that unless the sabbath was still important in 70 AD you see you see the importance of that Meaning, Jesus assumed that people would still be, the believers, the genuine believers, would still be keeping the Sabbath, which they did. They did, by the way, up until 321 AD, when things started to get a little murky. Of course, after that, too, people celebrated the Sabbath. It's a very complex history. Beginning with 321 AD, things started to get very murky. But until then, the true church, the first church, non-denominational church, before it became institutionalized, Christians obeyed and celebrated the Sabbath. Very, very important. And Jesus assumed that when he warmed then warned them about the destruction. So the disciples kept the Sabbath. But now let's look in the book of Acts, very detailed look at it. Acts one, verse twelve, Matthias chosen to replace Judas. Then they returned to Jerusalem from, a, from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, which is a Sabbath journey, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, a Sabbath day's journey was about a thousand yards at the time. This was a man-made tradition that, again, it was just one of these things like, well, how, how much can you do without you know, breaking the Sabbath? What can you get away with? Which God never really prescribed for you what was the minimal amount of distance that you could do to get around the law, so to speak. Again, use right. That's the whole point. It's brilliant, really. God did not prescribe these things because he wants you to use right judgment. Because there are times situations where maybe you might need to do something like that, like the whole Jericho situation, where there was a command to walk around the city several times. And that was more than a thousand feet or a thousand yards. But either way, um, this is a man-made law. But nonetheless, they were observing it as Sabbath day's journey. So why would they refer to a Sabbath day's journey unless they observe the Sabbath? Very important. Acts 13 verses 13 through 15. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from P- P- Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. A lot of P names. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any, if you have any word of encouragement for the people... Say it, And of course they, Paul stands up and preaches, but they went into the synagogue and sat down. They observed the Sabbath day. They were at the synagogue. Very, very important. They were worshiping and they were preaching because they were faithful Jews, but also Christians. The first Christians were Jews who kept the Sabbath. And that was part of the moral commandment that God had laid down from the beginning of creation. Now, if if it wasn't meaningful for them to be observing, if it if they weren't observing the Sabbath, it wouldn't be meaningful for them to come to mention this, to come into the, the synagogue on the Sabbath and sit down and listen to prayers. And then of course they stood up and spoke too, but they were worshiping that day. That's the point. Now, later in Acts 13, we we see after Paul speaks. What happens? They asked him they asked them to come back again the next Sabbath. Acts 13, verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath day, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So they were preaching, worshiping on the Sabbath. And of course, preaching the gospel and evangelizing. But nonetheless, they were observing the Sabbath, which is very, very important to understand. It is especially significant that Paul and Barnabas were invited to the next Sabbath. They could have said, you know what, let's do tomorrow because it's Sunday or whatever, the first day of the week. They didn't have Sunday at that time, but it was the first day of the week. Let's do that instead. Why not, Why not do tomorrow? Or, you know, let's do the fifth day or the sixth day. In this case, it was the Sabbath. Why? Because they observed the Sabbath. They were going to the synagogues normally. But now Paul has a new ministry. And so that was a layer on top of his previous self. He continued to go to the synagogues, but now he's preaching Christ, which is very important. Synagogues also had both Jews and Greeks. So the whole idea that the Sabbath is... And a lot of a lot of the Gentiles that converted were Greeks too, and they were keeping the Sabbath as well. You'll you'll see as we go through this series, it was not just made for the Jews. And hopefully, you've already learned that by today, because as we saw through history, the Sabbath was much, much longer before Sinai. At the very least, Exodus tells you that they were observing the Sabbath before Sinai, just Exodus alone, which is very important. Now compare this to First Corinthians. Chapter 11, verse 1, where he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul is imitating Christ. And we are conformed to the image of Christ. Now, did Christ celebrate the Sabbath? Yes. Did Christ uphold the Sabbath? Yes. Did Christ say the Sabbath is done away with? No. Did Christ say have right judgment on the Sabbath? Yes. Paul is imitating Christ. He's telling you to imitate him because he's imitating Christ. He also tells you the Spirit conforms you to the image of Christ. What does all that mean? Put it together. One and one, what do you get? You get that the Sabbath is still part of the Christian life. Very important. And very early on, obviously, was was very important. Paul kept the Sabbath. You'll see soon a little more evidence. Christ kept the Sabbath, and the disciples kept the Sabbath. Acts 16, verse 11 through 13. The conversion of Lydia. So, setting sail from Troas... We made a direct voyage of, to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remain in the city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Why are they going outside? Because they're praying and worshiping on the Sabbath day. They're, they're finding a place to worship. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So they were looking for a place to worship on the Sabbath day. And a few people had gotten together at this particular place. And that was when the rest of the the, com- the conversion of Lydia happened through preaching the word. But as you can see, consistent theme. They're worshiping, practicing on the Sabbath, but also because of their unique ministry, preaching the gospel. This is a unique situation we're dealing with. They're in a Jewish world of the old covenant. They're still doing the moral law, but now it's fulfilled. And now they're using the gospel to be preached on that day and doing good and healing and and imitating Christ, of course. Now, it was also another thing to mention is it was customary to shut down a synagogue if less than 10 people showed up. So this is possibly why the women had gathered there in this particular place. Just an interesting tidbit, but the point is that they were all gathered to pray and to worship on the Sabbath. This is the point, including the apostles and Paul. Acts 17, verse 1 through 3. Here it is. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. As was his custom. Was Paul a Christian? Yes. Was, did did it say Jesus, the same thing about Jesus, as was his custom? Remember that in Luke 4? Same thing. Paul observed the Sabbath. So did Jesus, and so did the disciples that were with Paul. But of course, Paul had a ministry, and so this is, is, again, the point to remember that people seem to forget. Uh, In Acts 18, verse 4, it says, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. There were Greeks in the synagogue, Jews and Greeks that were there, just hanging out. Who knows how it all happened, but ultimately he was there every Sabbath. Now, in verse eleven of Acts eighteen, it says, "And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them." Now, do the math: a year and six months is eighteen months. If he's there every Sabbath, that's at least like seventy Sabbaths recorded in the New in the uh, Acts. Yeah, the New Testament, the Acts of the Apostles, seventy Sabbaths that Paul observed. That, that the Bible is telling you that he observed, and of course, he was ministering to people and teaching. But he, as was his custom he observed the sabbath very clearly so first corinthians 16 verse 1 through 2 now concerning the collection for the saints as i directed the churches of gaia so are so also are so you are also to do on the first day of every week each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so there will be no collecting when i come now this is often used we're going to talk about this probably in a future episode a little more when we talk about sunday this is often used to see, see people are getting together to do collections, but it's really not. People are not, this is not talking about people getting together on Sunday. What it's actually saying is on the first day of the week, each of you put something aside and store it up. Meaning when the week begins, put something aside and store it up and get ready. That's the point. Now these letters, why is this, why do I bring this up? Because first off, the putting something aside and storing it up, this is an idiom in Greek. That basically means do it at home, like store it up at home. It's, it's not pointing to some religious meeting or collection plate being passed out at church. This is not what's going on here. People were meeting on the Sabbath day because that's when these letters were being read. And that way they would know on the first day, meaning tomorrow for them, get ready and start storing things up for the rest of the week. So that when I come, there's no collection being done and and calculating being done on the Sabbath because he came on the Sabbath to do the preaching. Do you see the consistent pattern? Like with the book of Acts, he was always preaching on the Sabbath. So he's telling them on the first day of the week, get ready, meaning I eat tomorrow. Like if you're hearing this letter for the first time, the first day of the week, I eat tomorrow get ready, store it up. So that when I come and preach, nobody's calculating tithes or, or contributions on the Sabbath. Why? Because Paul celebrated the Sabbath and he wants you to imitate him because he imitates Christ. Very, very important. So conclusions, either way, Sabbath was kept after Christ by the apostles, by the disciples, very clearly so from several examples up until you started to get the church state union in 321 AD with Constantine. And again, we have a whole episode dedicated to that very complex history to understand, but understanding it will help you understand what's happening in current events. Again, it comes back down to this matters. This matters incredibly for your wisdom, for your safety, for your relationship with God in these final days. And understanding all of this history is going to help you understand what's on the pipeline. Paul and his companions observed the Sabbath. The disciples observed the Sabbath. Jesus assumed that the, the people in 70 AD would be observing the Sabbath. Paul also had a unique ministry. So he was using that day to preach, to pray, to spread the gospel. The disciples were healing, just again, just like Jesus. They're being conformed to his image. And, you know, again, Jesus also had a unique ministry as well. So he was doing healings and various works to glorify God on the Sabbath, which were good. That's the higher good is glorifying God. How, how how much better could it? I mean, Like what I'm trying to say here is that's like the highest good possible is to glorify God through supernatural healing and the Messiah is on, on the earth, testifying to God's will and revealing the gospel and doing his wonderful things. That is the highest good. That good supersedes the good of the Sabbath, meaning of the good of not Doing work. Do you see, do you see the right judgment? Do you see the importance of using right judgment? This is what it continually tells you. Now we know also in Acts 2, this is earlier in Acts, but the apostles, the disciples followed the footstep of the apostles. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, put it together. Paul learned from Peter, who was also an Israelite. Paul kept the Sabbath. That means Peter kept the Sabbath, and so did the apostles and the disciples. Very clearly so. Obviously, from all these verses, it is very, very clear. Now, just for a quick note about this verse in Acts 2 of breaking the bread. It's not talking about um, communion or Eucharist or all these different things on Sunday. That's not at all what this is talking about. Breaking bread is a thing that they did every day. Now, and you can check that by looking at. Uh, Later, verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, day by day, it was an everyday thing, they received their food with glad, generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Which, by the way, tells you God is doing the work of salvation, not you. But anyway, um, day by day, they were breaking bread. This is a breaking bread when it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. This is a fellowship thing. It's not telling you that they had Eucharist and communion and transubstantiation. All these things that Catholics and Orthodox like to read into the scriptures. This is a fellowship thing. They're doing it day by day. They're getting together to break bread, to meal, to talk. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. We could learn from that. But nonetheless, the apostles, the disciples, the, the people who followed the apostles, they were all celebrating the Sabbath because it was being consistently handed down, through from Adam all the way to Christ. In Acts 20, verse 7, they were gathering together on the first day of the week. We were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them intending to depart on that day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Again, they're not gathering together just on the first day. This is just happens to mention that we were gathering together to break bread, and it was the first day of the week. We'll get more into this in a future episode on Sunday and how that was switched over, but this is not what this is saying. It's just mentioning the first day of the week. The first day of the week was the day that they were gathering, especially because it was a day to honor the resurrection. That was a tradition in the church, but they were gathering every day to break bread. See the point? Very, very important. So either way, fellowship was important to them and they were gathering together every day, but the Sabbath was never changed. The disciples, the apostles, they upheld and kept the Sabbath. Very clear from the book of Acts. And again, we know Paul got his information from Peter and we can see through Paul's lens that he observed the Sabbath, the people around him observed the Sabbath. And so Peter observed the Sabbath, meaning the apostles observed the Sabbath, just like Jesus did. We're going to have more on this in future episodes, but here's some final thoughts. From Adam to Christ and beyond, the Sabbath was in effect From the beginning of creation, and it's going to be in effect until we die. It will probably be in effect in some sense when Christ returns. Who knows? I don't know. I'm guessing that the structure of time is going to be the same. I think that the relevance of time will be largely irrelevant in the sense that you're going to live forever. But nonetheless, I think that there will be a seven-day structure to time. I don't see that changing. I really don't. Because again, the Sabbath is also a picture of what Christ did on the cross. And that will be something we will forever remember because it is the context for our existence. It's the context for our eternal life. So I don't think that's changing. The Sabbath is not about perfect performance. It's about resting intentionally and doing good. Now, sometimes you're gonna have a conflict of interest between two things. You have to have right judgment to choose which is the higher good in the two. This is the lesson that Jesus consistently says with the Sabbath. It's not that the Sabbath is done away with. It's what is the higher good in the particular situation. And that is what it means to judge rightly. Because if you don't have right judgment, you become a legalist. You become an absolutist. Or you become, you know, I don't know what the opposite of legalist is, like a permissivist. You have a license to sin, meaning you have a license, well, whatever, it doesn't matter anymore. You're dismissive about it. Both are wrong. The devil wants you to go either to the right or to the left. He doesn't want, want you walking the Nero road. remember that the principles God wants, he desires mercy, not sacrifice. Obedience is better than burnt offerings. Knowledge of the Lord. It's about a relationship. God is life and truth. And he's spirit too. He's in spirit and truth. And the point is things are spiritual in nature. He desires a spiritual connection, a spiritual relationship of faith and repentance and humility and obedience. That's what he desires. And that's why again, the Sabbath is going to be an issue with the end times. So if you didn't watch the first episode or my Mark of the Beast episode of my end time series, please go check it out so you learn the truth. And ultimately, because we have the light of the New Testament, we can use right judgment with the Sabbath. So make sure you use right judgment. <laughs>